There was a video game that came out on Nintendo called Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. As you may know or been able to guess, it was a boxing game. In each match, your face you're faced with a different opponent, which in practice amounted to learning your adversary's pattern and hitting the right buttons at the right time. Mechanically, Punch-Out was simplistic, but still a lot of fun. It didn't feel like a boxing match. You didn't even move your fighter around the ring. Each opponent followed a simple rhythm, and believe it or not, the game was still very hard to beat. The opponents became sequentially faster and had trickier patterns of attack. So the game started off quite easy and became progressively much more difficult. Why have I taken you down this little memory lane? Well, I'm glad you've asked. I've been thinking about conscious behavior and what it gets for an organism in terms of trade-off compared to algorithmic non-conscious behavior. At first, it seems obvious that in a universe that evidently allows conscious processes, this innovation should be favored by natural selection. The reason comes from evaluating the case of winning boxing matches on Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. The player at home is obviously a conscious being capable of adapting and strategizing. The player is trying to win. He has a clear goal and the motivation to achieve it. The adversary is a basic zombie program. It does not change its behavior to try to figure out the player at all. It simply does what it does according to the plan of its designers. Modern video games have much more convincing enemies, but they're still zombies acting in accordance with algorithms. It's just that the algorithms are a bit more sophisticated. Assuming that natural selection acts on a variety of different mechanisms of controlling behavior, it might be expected that consciousness would be a useful feature. You might be thinking that modern learning algorithms and artificial intelligence programs could outcompete conscious creatures, could adapt different strategies, and so on. Sure. In fact, I would add that learning algorithms do this by means of the same processes as natural selection. Two problems present themselves to me, though, which favor consciousness. In other words, they favor a being which has a subjective interest in what happens. First, complex algorithms to suit every conceivable situation are probably impracticable at the level of nervous system evolution. The complexity of the algorithms would require brains that are bigger than biological systems have so far been able to support. Secondly, the establishment of novel goals is another level of complexity. If you provide a goal to a learning algorithm and run it on a high-speed computer against incoming data, it can improve toward the attainment of that goal, but it cannot determine its own goal to work toward or intuit the necessity of changing its goal the way a human mind can. Think about a mother bear and her cubs. She is highly motivated by her feelings for those cubs to do what is necessary to protect and guide them. If a threat shows up, say a hungry male bear appears, she will hide them, or attempt to lure the male away, or fight, or do whatever she comes up with. She doesn't do so according to a script. She does so according to the situation she is in. And if instead the threat is a fast-running river into which the cub is strayed, she does not become angry at the water and engage it in battle. She might rush into the river to pull the cub out. Do we assume that the mother bear is equipped with a separate behavioral routine for each potential threat? Here's an algorithm to run in the case of a male bear. Here's one in case of wolves. Here's one in the case of two male bears. Here's one for an approaching fire. And on and on. It's better, I submit to you, if she simply cares for the well-being of the cubs innately. Then she can simply apply her intelligence and experience to any threat or opportunity which presents itself. If these premises are loosely acceptable, we should not be surprised that humans and other big-brained creatures come equipped with consciousness. But upon closer examination, I've noticed a potential error in this strategy that may lead to its ultimate ruination at least in our case. Human beings favor experiences that feel good. One could even posit that seeking good experiences is the nature of functionally conscious beings in general. 
The question to begin with is, what kinds of experiences feel good and why? The answer to this question tells us something important about our values, about what it is we value, because it is the acquiring or achieving of those things which makes us feel good. Broadly speaking, the things which we value have been attached by the process of human evolution to the feelings we most enjoy. Thus, good sex and good food are high on the list. That's no surprise. Winning feels good, especially when there is a significant prize. How about making steps toward an important goal? The feeling of pride in our accomplishments, the respect and admiration of others, the affirmation of important relationships. Clearly, hedonistic pleasure is only a small part of the picture of the good life. It seems as though an awful lot of what we spend our time doing is fulfilling obligations and responsibilities, at least to the extent that we aren't distracting ourselves with coffee and cigarettes, snacks and social media. The responsibilities themselves are usually not good experiences. Grocery shopping and other errands are a bit of a drag. But the accomplishment of such things is often a prerequisite for good experiences which we do aspire to. We go to work even though we don't want to be there because a paycheck and health benefits are necessary for the food and shelter and comforts that we enjoy. And if we're lucky, we get something out of the social interactions of our workplace, the respect of our colleagues, and so on. If we're really lucky, we get a sense of pride in accomplishing what we do at our workplace, too. We feel productive, and we take pride in fulfilling our missions. Even the regular unpleasant things that we endure are done in the service of meeting our needs and providing us with luxuries. In an important way, too, we feel more secure when we have completed our tasks, when the bills are paid and the refrigerator is full. It is my hypothesis that everything we do, all of our behavior, and indeed the conscious behavior of all sentient animals, is driven by the pursuit of good experiences, good subjective states. The things which are good are, by definition, those things which we value. It might feel good to buy a new pair of shoes, or to watch a movie that we like, or to eat a tasty dessert. The means by which these things feel good are mechanisms in the brain, especially driven by the hypothalamus and the limbic system. As I said, the things we value as humans are provided to us by evolution. But there is a worry here. At least in humans, the behaviors in which we engage have been substantially offloaded from being instinctual and automatic to being purposeful and conscious. This means that the nervous system has to coerce us to do what is in the best interest of the organism by making it feel good to do so. For example, we feel good when we get things done and receive the attendant esteem of our community. What if we, in the modern context, could simply hack this incentive structure and bypass the best interest of the organism? What if we could just take a pill or an injection and get the good feelings without putting in the work, without accomplishing anything for the benefit of the organism or its community? Would we do so? All things being equal, it would be the obvious choice for many of us to do so. The reason so many of us don't anesthetize ourselves with opiates and barbiturates, grossly overindulge in booze and rich food, must be that all things are not equal. There is some trade-off that we are not prepared to pay. We have something to gain in terms of positive experiences that is better achieved through the traditional means. Let me consider an example. What is the function of human sexual behavior? It seems to me that there are two important functions, reproduction and social bonding. These are objectively valuable in evolutionary terms. The pair bonding which occurs between mates is ideal for the raising of shared children. Accordingly, the brain produces some of its most pleasurable and fulfilling experiences in the sexual context. Oxytocin, vasopressin, and endogenous opioids are important mediators of these experiences. Whereas pornography and hookup culture serve as hacks, in part, for these experiences, and are unsurprisingly utilized at a very high rate in modern society, they do not equate to the positive and sustained feelings attendant upon falling in love, for example. 
For this reason, these substitutes are incomplete. This is a good thing, because if the substitutes for human sexual flourishing were just as good as the genuine article, we would be in great peril as a species. Should we be relieved, then? Well, in principle, there is nothing preventing the development of a pharmacological or brain-stimulating innovation which is completely equivalent to the subjective quality of the best which human sexuality can obtain. This might even be good news in existential terms for conscious entities such as ourselves, but it will be decidedly bad news for the continuation of Homo sapiens. The fertility rate in the United States is now 1.7. That means that women have, on average, 1.7 children. This is the average, and of course there are differences in different communities, notably in religious communities where the rate is much higher. In order to maintain the population, it is apparently necessary for the fertility rate to be above 2.1, so we are now facing a decline in future population. This will have economic and social consequences, which I'm not in a position to address here. My point in bringing up the fertility rate at all is just to note that we are capable of innovating means of getting the experiences we want without doing the bidding of our evolved value systems. There is another interesting thing here. What is it about religious communities embedded within the larger society which makes the valuation different? The culture in which we live provides incentives and disincentives which alter our behavior. Recall that I mentioned the good feeling of being respected and held in high esteem by one's community. This sense of self-worth is mediated at least in large part by serotonin. If a community places a high social value on marriage and childbearing, then members of that community will be incentivized to get married and have lots of children for the same reason that you or I might value a major personal or career achievement. We want to feel good. We want to have and sustain good experiences. How about another example? What in the world makes us excited? We are notably excited by opportunities. An opportunity to make money, to make new friends, a deer we're tracking in the woods, a potential sexual partner, an inspiring idea, whatever it is, the positive feeling of enthusiasm we experience in such conditions is mediated by dopamine. In his book, Affective Neuroscience, Jock Panksepp describes this dopamine system and the behaviors that involve it. Panksepp writes, quote, There is growing acceptance that this emotion of the brain, the basic impulse to search, investigate, and make sense of the environment, emerges from the circuits that course through the lateral hypothalamus. The anatomy of brain dopamine circuits corresponds to the general trajectory of this psychobehavioral system, and brain dopamine itself is an essential ingredient in allowing the circuitry to operate efficiently. Although many other brain chemistries are involved in the overall construction of the seeking response, investigators have generated diverse names for this system. Originally, I called it the foraging expectancy system, while Jeffrey Gray called it the behavioral activation system. More recently, Richard Depew chose to call it the behavioral facilitation system, and most investigators now working in the field are beginning to agree that it is a general incentive or appetitive motivational system that mediates wanting as opposed to liking. Competition among terminologies can promote confusion, especially for students just being exposed to the relevant information, so I hesitate to contribute more variability to that trend. However, since there are problems with all of these terminologies, Seeking seems to be a more suitable term for psychology because it implies a distinct psychological dimension as opposed to a mere behavioral process. This harmonious operating neuroemotional system drives and energizes many mental complexities that humans experience as persistent feelings of interest, curiosity, sensation seeking, and in the presence of a sufficiently complex cortex, the search for higher meaning." Unquote. Notice that Panksepp's last statement in that segment implies that my interest in understanding consciousness is itself driven by the activation of this dopamine system when I engage with these ideas. 
A couple of years ago, I took the five-dimension personality test, which is often used these days in personality psychology. I scored very high on intellect, which despite its positive valence as a term, which we tend to use to mean intelligence, is not the same thing. In brief, intellect is the interest in ideas. I am indeed very interested, even obsessively enthusiastic about ideas, whether philosophical or political, moral, scientific, comedic, or creative. But all of that is dependent on the way my brain works with regard to such things. Some people are simply not all that turned on by discussing ideas. The fact that I'm excited by ideas is essentially an accident of the brain I happen to have. Panksepp goes on, quote, The mental effects of psychostimulants, such as cocaine and amphetamines that arouse the dopamine system, provide a direct porthole into the feelings evoked by this emotional system. The affective state does not resemble the pleasurable feelings we normally experience when we indulge in various consumatory behaviors. Instead, it resembles the energization organisms apparently feel when they are anticipating rewards, unquote. So just as pornography can serve as a hack for achieving the rewards of sexual behavior, at least in part, amphetamines such as crystal meth hack the seeking system. These drugs have significant side effects, including psychosis and paranoia, but this is the same thing that happens in states of mania, or psychosis that occur in purely neurological or psychological disorders. Too much dopamine coursing through the system, and we wind up carrying on about winning and having tiger blood. A state like that is essentially a state of excessive excitement. No doubt a state of optimistic mania and delusions of grandeur is one that feels really good. But it isn't in the interest of the organism, is it? That's the kind of thought process that leads one to gleefully jump off a building, crying, I can fly. Self-confidence and probably outgoing sociable behavior is mediated at least in part by serotonin. Jordan Peterson famously discussed dominance behavior in lobsters as a demonstration of two key facts with regard to the nature of hierarchies. First, he made the point that Western society is not the birthplace of social hierarchies. They've existed in animals for millions of years, and humans are no exception. Secondly, he made the observation, which is intriguing if a bit oversimplified, that combative behavior reflecting confidence in lobsters tracks with the level of serotonin in the lobster brain. Thus, there is a parallel between the neural correlates of dominance behavior in humans and other animals, even as distantly related as crustaceans. In 12 Rules for Life, Peterson wrote, quote, The part of our brain that keeps track of our position in the dominance hierarchy is therefore exceptionally ancient and fundamental. It is a master control system, modulating our perceptions, values, emotions, thoughts, and actions. It powerfully affects every aspect of our being, conscious and unconscious alike. This is why, when we are defeated, we act very much like lobsters who have lost a fight. Our posture droops. We face the ground. We feel threatened, hurt, anxious, and weak. If things do not improve, we become chronically depressed. Under such conditions, we can't easily put up the kind of fight that life demands, and we become easy targets for harder-shelled bullies. And it is not only the behavioral and experiential similarities that are striking, much of the basic neurochemistry is the same. Consider serotonin, the chemical that governs posture and escape in the lobster. Low-ranking lobsters produce comparatively low levels of serotonin. This is also true of low-ranking human beings. Low serotonin means decreased confidence. Low serotonin means more response to stress and costlier physical preparedness for emergency, as anything whatsoever may happen at any time at the bottom of the dominance hierarchy. Low serotonin means less happiness, more pain and anxiety, more illness, and a shorter lifespan among humans just as among crustaceans. Higher spots in the dominance hierarchy and the higher serotonin levels typical of those who inhabit them are characterized by less illness, misery, and death. 
even when factors such as absolute income or number of decaying food scraps are held constant. The importance of this can hardly be overstated." Unquote. The examples I've discussed of how specific brain systems and neurochemicals serve to make us feel good in a variety of ways demonstrate the mechanisms by which these feelings can be hacked. Presently, there are millions of Americans addicted to opiate drugs, including heroin and fentanyl. Experiences of great excitement can be acquired with methamphetamines and cocaine. Antidepressant drugs raise the levels of serotonin in the synapse, serving to rescue the despondent and chronically depressed from feeling immiserated whether that mental state is appropriate to the conditions of their life or not. It might be that the misery we are feeling is a warning that we need to make a change, that something we are doing is hurting us. It could be counterproductive to take a pill and keep on doing what we've been doing. Perhaps it would be better to set new goals, to change direction. Maybe we really are on the wrong path. Obviously, there are clinical applications for drugs that affect pain, anxiety, and depression, but their potential for abuse is equally obvious. In the not-too-distant future, psychological drugs as we know them might seem archaic, as gene-based therapies and device-based stimulation take their place. What will prevent us from engineering a solution to the problems of conscious being that completely fail to serve the purposes for which those problems evolved? In exchange for an end to pain and social anxiety and shame and the pang of failure, will we not also put an end to the motivation to do anything productive at all? This is a classic instance of Chesterton's fence. G.K. Chesterton's idea was that if we come upon a fence which is standing in our way, we should not remove it until we know the reason it was put there in the first place. If we are experiencing pain or hardship, that experience might be like a fence put up by evolution. A cure for the pain might be a prescription for disaster. In all likelihood, the pain or anxiety or sorrow is indicating something real, a real problem in the conditions of one's life, perhaps the difference between living and dying. Homo sapiens is a highly social species. We do not do well in social isolation. We need to be connected, to be a part of a family or a close community. Consider the following from Jock Pengsep. He wrote, quote, The first neurochemical that was found to exert a powerful inhibitory effect on separation distress was the brain opioid system. This provided a powerful new way to understand social attachments. There are strong similarities between the dynamics of opiate addiction and social dependence, and it is now clear that positive social interactions derive part of their pleasure from the release of opioids in the brain. For instance, the opioid systems of young animals are quite active in the midst of rough-and-tumble play, and when old, older animals share friendly time grooming each other, their brain opioid systems are activated. Finally, sexual gratification is due at least in part to opioid release within the brain. From all this, it is tempting to hypothesize that one reason certain people become addicted to external opiates is because they are able to artificially induce feelings of gratification similar to norm those normally achieved by the socially induced release of endogenous opioids, such as endorphins and encephalins. In doing this, individuals are able to pharmacologically induce the positive feeling of connectedness that others derive from social interactions. Is it any wonder that these people even become intensely attached to the paraphernalia associated with their drug experiences, or that addicts tend to become socially isolated, except when they are approaching withdrawal and seeking more drugs. Indeed, opiate addiction in humans is most common in environments where social isolation and alienation are endemic. Investigators have been able to increase opiate consumption in experimental animals simply by separating them from companionship." Unquote. Witness two opposing trends in our society. On one hand, people are becoming more isolated and addicted. 
depression, suicide, and overdose are killing greater and greater numbers of young people who would seem to you and me to have had every opportunity to do something meaningful with their lives. On the other hand, our society is becoming more and more polarized and tribal. What draws a person into the Crips, or the cartel, or the Aryan Brotherhood? What draws a person into Islamic Jihad, or Antifa, or QAnon, or the cult of extreme left-wing ideology? At first blush, these two phenomena of drug addiction and intense tribalism seem utterly unrelated. Are they? In both cases, the problem is the same and the solution is the same. It is our nature to seek comfort and community and purpose. These pursuits are mediated by neurochemicals, such as opioids, dopamine, and oxytocin. Apparently, there are two sure ways to get these molecules. On the one hand, we can get them in the form of tablets and injections. On the other hand, we can get them by joining a clan with a mission. The dopamine comes with the shared purpose and the opioids come with the tribal sense of connectedness. If we are to rescue our society from these terrible pitfalls, we will have to offer young people a compelling alternative, a path to community and purpose that transcends these pathways to destruction. There's no way around it, only through. It is only by means of the brain's evolved systems that human beings can flourish. We need mentors and leaders to step up and accept this challenge to show the way to obtaining what we all want together. We have to fight back against the systems we've inherited in terms of neurophysiology. So we could just check out of the survival game altogether, cease our human ambitions and drug our brains into compliance. Or we could exploit these systems in the other direction by flourishing as we never have before in the state of nature. We get a bigger thrill from accomplishing something that's hard than we do accomplishing something easy. So let's accomplish something hard. We need resistance and hardship to hone our skills and resources upon. In order to be the best that we can be, in order to discover true fulfillment and meaning, we cannot be handed the solution in the form of a pill. Often the solution is not the solution. The process of discovering the solution is the solution. The human project depends on solving this conundrum, the hazard of conscious being. Like Andy Dufresne said, get busy living or get busy dying. Damn right.